0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Charles Murray, the best-selling author and famous scholar on why America has fallen apart and what we should do in response to that fact. That's coming right up. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Charles Murray. He is the FA Hayek Emeritus Chair in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and he's come to first came to national attention in 1984 with the publication of Losing Ground, which has been credited as the intellectual foundation for the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. His 1994 New York Times bestseller The Bell Curve, co-authored with the late Richard Herrnstein, sparked heated controversy for its analysis of IQ in shaping American class structure. His other books include What It Means to Be a Libertarian Human Accomplishment, In Our Hands and the recent New York Times bestseller, Coming Apart, The State of White America. He joins me to discuss the conclusions in that book The State of American Society and where we go from here. All right, uh, just to start off, for uh, those of our listeners and viewers who aren't as familiar with your background, maybe you could just tell us a bit about your background and how you became the researcher and the scholar that you are.
1: Well, that's a dangerous thing to ask because we're talking about uh, 50-odd years ago that I was in Thailand Mm -hmm. as a uh, Peace Corps volunteer, and I was working in Thai villages, and after I stopped being a Peace Corps volunteer, I started to work on research projects, which at the time in Thailand were being sponsored by USAID, the Department of Defense, everyone else, because Thailand had an insurgency and we were trying to win the hearts and minds of the villagers. So I won't go into this at any great length, but I did research in Thai villages and I discovered that uh, I understood things about Thai villages that I didn't think anthropologists did understand And I wanted to be able to express those using evidence that could be compared and tested. And so I became interested in quantitative social science methods. I went back to MIT, got a PhD with uh, quantitative methods as one of the main uh, themes of my work. And I've been working as a social scientist an applied social scientist ever
0: since. So one of the things that was, uh, I found interesting about your time in Thailand was you said that you always found the government thought rural people wanted things that were very different from what the rural people actually wanted. And this ends up applying very much to some of the more recent research you were doing. So maybe detail uh, uh, that for us a bit. How, how was there this chasm between what the people in the cities thought those in the country wanted and what they actually wanted?
1: When when we went out to do the research, we chose villages that had supposedly received high input from the government, you know, uh, two cropping projects, uh, hog raising projects, ponds, reservoirs, all this kind of stuff. And we had three villages that had low input. The government ignored them. And what we discovered was the high input villages had no idea they were high input villages. <laughs> because... The, uh, the double cropping project has, had failed. The fish pond uh, didn't produce any fish. The, uh, the, the well with the pump that was put in was put in where the water was salty. And so all of the projects that the government had done made no difference for the lives of the villagers. So then when we talked about to the villagers without any structure, just listening to them talk about life in the village, it was obvious that a good government... As far as a Thai villager is concerned, uh, the Thai government should do just a couple of things. One, it should catch water buffalo thieves and punish them severely. A water buffalo is a big deal to a Thai villager. It is a source of livelihood. It's his most valuable asset. And a government that did that stopped buffalo thieving was a good government. And a government that allowed them to make enough moonshine whiskey to drink was also a good government. Technically against the law, the villagers were reasonable. They didn't want permission to make enough to sell. They just wanted to make enough for their own consumption and have the government leave them alone otherwise. This was a big revelation to me. And then uh, the second part of that revelation was um, discovering it wasn't the district government or the provincial government that made a difference. It was the local government of that village. And if that village had a good headman and good elders, it was a happy village. If it had a bad headman, it was an unhappy village. So long story short, I came back very sympathetic to the idea that if you're going to understand policy problems, you better understand what they look like to people who are on the ground. And you're right. Those themes resurfaced very directly in the, the book called Coming
0: Apart. So one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you before we get into to the book coming apart is uh, you'd said you would said you were already brought up as a conservative prior to going to Thailand. And so how did your experience in Thailand modify the conservatism you'd grown up with, inform it, or replace it entirely? Because I know you now identify more as a libertarian.
1: Well, no, actually, at the time I went to Thailand, I was not very political. But insofar as I was political, I was a standard academic liberal. Right. I loved John Kennedy. I voted, albeit not enthusiastically, for Lyndon Johnson. But I wasn't very political at all. And and what Thailand did wasn't immediately make me say to myself, oh, you're a libertarian. What it did do was make me very suspicious of a lot of the things I had heard about what the government ought to do to make people happy. And so I went into the 1980s. Uh, when I started, when I left uh, a very safe, well-paying job as a, a nonpartisan researcher on contract to the government, uh, at the time I left, I knew that I wanted to explore the relationship of government to people's satisfaction with their lives. But I didn't do it from an explicitly libertarian perspective. That came with the writing of Losing Ground, where. When I got to the end of the book and I was supposed to put up my policy recommendations, I realized that none of my policy recommendations were practical and all of them were leading me in the direction of saying the government should do much less to interfere in people's lives, give them much more choice. It was a very, it was, I was a libertarian by convincement, not by upbringing.
0: Right. Right. So let's get into uh, your book, Coming Apart, The State of White America. Just to start off, how would you summarize the thesis of that book? I recognize how difficult that's to do, considering its length.
1: It's not the whole book, but it says, look, we have a new upper class that is different in kind from anything we have had before in this country. We've always had rich people and poor people but we have not had a new upper, uh, an upper class which saw itself as culturally distinct from the rest of America. Hmm. And I said we also have a new lower class which is different because even though we've always had poor people, poor people in the United States usually got married. Uh, they got married before they had children. The males were in the labor force. There were all sorts of ways in people with which people with low incomes were full participants. In American society. And furthermore, being poor was not considered to be a, a badge of moral dishonor. Uh, in fact, the poor were more inclined to think of themselves as morally upright than the elite rich. That's changed. So you now have a class of very low income people, but it's not low income, which distinguishes them. They have dropped out of participation in, in the basic institutions of American life. So, very briefly, that's that's the framework that I took to the book.
0: So it's interesting when you talk about these these two classes, this new upper class, and then there was a lower class. And I had Doctor Daryl Paul on the show uh, earlier our last year and he was talking about too how the elites have a different set of values now uh, than the lower class actually does. This book came out prior to Trump's election. When you laid out this framework, did was it in some ways a predictor of the fact that there was going to be some sort of populist who was going to recognize this and play into it whether or not he realized he was playing into what your thesis was?
1: You know, it's very interesting because I didn't have any sort of political implications in mind right? Uh, at the time I wrote it. And, and I remember thinking to myself, there's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of discontent with the new upper class. And when I tried to say to myself, well, but how would this manifest itself? Uh, I did not have the imagination <laughs> to see that Donald Trump would embody this anger and uh, and catalyze it and lead to a successful political movement. In my own defense, did anybody else <laughs> see <laughs> Donald Trump as as the as the leader of this? So, I what I underestimated in uh, coming apart was the political potential, right? The anger, but I did identify the anger and resentment, uh, which which resulted in the election of Donald Trump.
0: So digging into this a little bit more, when you talk about this new upper class, maybe describe it for us. As you said, there's always been the rich and the poor. There's examples at every different point in American history, from the railway barons uh, all the way through uh, to the the New York liberals of the the 80s and the early 90s. So how would you describe this new upper class? What what does it look like? Who are some prominent figures in it? Um, I guess make this accessible for people uh, who have never really uh, heard this thesis in detail before.
1: And, and I don't want to emphasize the political aspects of it. I'm not talking about a left liberal upper class versus a different kind of conservative upper class. I'm talking about a different a difference in culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And just, just uh, let me run through some of the elements of the culture that are different. Family life. Um, you know, the, the new upper class is likely to be very dismissive of the traditional two-parent family in their writings. And they will talk about, uh, we must understand the family has changed in modernity. There are now many types of families. Guess what? Members of the new upper class still get married in large numbers, and they have their children within marriage, and they behave in terms of child upbringing very responsibly. They, in fact, in many cases, are helicopter parents, and they're way too energetic in raising their kids. But they are living a life that is now very alien in low-income America, where you have very high proportions of children being born out of wedlock, people not getting married, where you have uh, among, now I'm talking about sort of the bottom of society, where child abuse is sadly very common, and it's especially common because of men living in the home who are not the biological parents of the children. That's right. that's where it's focused. Okay, so you have the family is alive and well, an upper middle class, a uh, new upper class. It is decaying very badly in the lower class. But there are other less horrific kinds of differences. Consider the radio and television that the new upper class listens to. It's NPR for radio, basically, and television. They don't watch much. If they do, it's Down an Abbey or it's movies. Uh, it's, this bears no relationship to the television and movies and radio that is listened to not just by the new lower class, but the middle class. Um, a completely different set of cultural inputs coming in. The age of marriage is very different. Uh, if people get married in the new upper class, it's usually in the mid-30s or, or early 30s, sometimes later. The vacations people take. The new upper class no longer goes to fishing camps in northern Minnesota, where they're hanging out with lots of people from lots of different classes. They go scuba diving in Belize, where they're with others of their own kind. I can't keep going on, but I, I think this gives you a sense of the degree to which they really live in very different worlds, culturally. And the new upper class shows very little interest in trying to become less isolated from the rest of the country.
0: Well it's sort of interesting when you say that this is not uh, you know, on political lines explicitly because that's basically the the case that Tucker Carlson has been making for a couple of years now is that the the Trump phenomenon showed that the establishment of both parties were wrong that to some degree the sort of country club republicans and the the liberals that you that you described are actually part of the same class they're going to meet each other at the scuba club in Belize um they're they're doing the same sorts of things watching the same entertainment And so this is why the the political upheaval affected both parties so enormously. But I guess one of the things I I wanted to know is uh, conservatives have traditionally been very resistant to this idea that there's a growing chasm between the rich and the poor. That sounds like very Marxist or socialist language to most people, mainly because they're so wary of the solutions that, that the left is proposing to that problem. But it's obviously true that this is the case. But how did this come about? over the last 25 years or so. How did we get to an America where there's two distinct cultures and those cultures are largely determined um, by how wealthy you are?
1: First, I just want to underscore that I agree very emphatically with what you said. And I agree with a lot of what Tucker Carlson is saying. (laughs) Tucker's a good example of a person who was definitely a member of the new upper class. Mm -hmm. and, And I'm sure that Tucker's listening habits and doing uh, habits and all the rest of his behaviors made him a typical member of the new upper class. I will simply say that he now has some of the fervor of the reform drunk. You know, sometimes I think he goes a little bit too far, but he's <laughs> essentially correct that the Marco Rubios and the uh, Ted Cruz's and the uh, 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 Josh Bush and Jeb Bush and the rest of them, yeah, they're members of the new upper class. and shared that mindset. How did it happen? You've got two huge forces that were at work, and they have to do with uh, the creation of success. One was that this thing called IQ, very controversial word in this, became much more valuable economically over the last half of the 20th century. The economy became much more complex. Uh, Government became way more complex. And as the institutions and the the workings of those institutions became more complex, and as the economy grew, the value of being able to navigate that complexity. If you're a lawyer, the ability to to negotiate these incredibly complex multinational deals. Uh, If you're writing advertising copy, the ability to move market share by a fraction of a point became hugely more financially important to companies and warranted a much larger salary. I could go through a long list of occupations. Don't even get me started on computer programs. Um,
0: Learn to code.
1: High IQ IQ became associated with much uh, greater economic success in life. And the second thing, which was a good thing, is that in the last half of the 20th century, um, the elite colleges started shifting from schools with a lot of rich kids to schools with some of the very smartest kids in the country from all kinds of backgrounds. Look, I came from a small town in Iowa. I went to Harvard in the fall of 1961. If I'd been growing up in 1931, I wouldn't have gone to Harvard. Would have, wouldn't have crossed my mind. And and so you had the phenomenon, which wasn't bad, that people were giving an opportunity to develop their potential, fine. But it, over time, meant that you had these Critical masses were sort of cultural centers. Example, Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of Harvard. 1961. Yeah, was Harvard a different kind of culture? Yes, but Cambridge, Massachusetts, outside the gates of Harvard Yard, was basically a lower middle class city. Right, right. Now you go to Cambridge, you walk outside the gates of Harvard Yard, and it is filled with every kind of upper class uh, amenity you want.
0: Right, the sort of place where your coffee costs six bucks. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, this is all I have to tell you. Within walking distance of Harvard Yard, there are not now just one, but two full food stores. I mean, basically, (laughs) you don't need to know anymore. You develop centers where this culture could become the dominant culture, and now that's where everybody lives. Quick new example, Uh, in Washington, D.C., you have the zip codes where the people who run the government live and run and the lead lobbyists. There are about nine of those zip codes. Socioeconomically they are in the top half of the top percentile of all zip codes in the United States. I mean that's what you call a bubble.
0: So, um, out of curiosity, there IQ is part of this. The changing economy is a huge part of this. I think this is the one thing everybody has started to recognize. And you got people like Tucker Carlson and others who are worrying that the the continuing and accelerating pace of change is only going to exacerbate these problems. And we still don't have a real solution on, on like on the horizon. Because if you look at let's take let's take for example J.D. Vance and the book Hillbilly Elegy. You basically have a a story that kind of encapsulates what you're saying is you have somebody who's from that background, but based on the fact that he's very intelligent um, and, of course, uh, several key people in his life that really helped him through some difficult periods, he manages to go to an Ivy League college and is now a, a, a best-selling author and conservative thinker in his own right. What are the chances, in your view, of somebody who who just simply doesn't have that sort of intelligence? I think would be the, the best way to put this, because there are different kinds of of intelligence. I know a lot of Ivy League people who couldn't punch their way out of a wet paper bag, practically speaking. So there are different kinds of intelligence here, but the, the kind that you're referring to. What are the chances that what, what kind of chance these people have in the new economy, especially because as much as Trump um, I, like massaged their problems with his rhetoric, the the idea that he's going to be able to implement any kind of policy that actually addresses the things that are are creating their angst in the first place is, I think, very unlikely, although I'd love to be proven wrong.
1: Okay, you've asked a very complicated question, and I want to set the answer by first de-emphasizing the importance of IQ. You are not going to be hired by Google uh, at a high six-figure salary with stock options as a programmer, unless you have extremely high visual spatial skills. Right. That's just the way it goes, you know, mm-hmm. and you can't get high visual spatial skills by trying hard. So are there certain kinds of occupations that people are locked out of because they, they don't have the ability? Yes. For example, I could not be hired by Google because my visual spatial skills aren't high enough for that. Okay, but so what? There are all sorts of extremely satisfying ways of making a good living that are open to a very wide range of of IQs um, because other qualities besides IQ, such as determination and persistence and imagination and hard work, make a huge difference. So there's way too much pessimism about the ability of ordinary people who work hard to be quite successful in American life, economically, point number one. Point number two, uh, I don't want to go into a long riff on this. Um, oh, feel free. But well, the, the, the importance of income to a satisfying life is so exaggerated in today's culture. It used to be, to, I, know, I, I suppose I'm sounding nostalgic, but within living memory, being very rich was not considered a key to a happy life. A uh, key to happy life was having a satisfying job, a family, uh, friends, neighborhood, and that, that's still true. <laughs> when you get to be my age, and I'm a, I turn seventy-seven two days from now. Uh, when you get to be my age, it becomes very obvious that doubling or tripling your net worth would make no difference whatsoever to your quality of life. And I assure you, I'm not wealthy in any contemporary sense of that term. Rather, it's these other things which are sources of happiness that are accessible to everybody. Here's the problem. The problem is that we have systematically stripped those sources of satisfaction from certain segments of the population by de-emphasizing the importance of family and creating a culture which often mocks the traditional family. Right. By, by having a culture which treats people in small towns and small cities as members of flyover country that are contemptuous, contemptible because they aren't sophisticated and so forth, by, by uh, being contemptuous of religion, by being contemptuous of people who have worked with their hands, all sorts of ways that the new upper-class culture has done its very best to denude these important sources of satisfaction for everybody but themselves. They do this in the name of supporting the underdog. But in fact, what they are doing, uh, let me, I don't want to go off the rails here, but I'll just say it. The reality of the attitude of the new upper class toward ordinary Americans, if they are people of color, is that ordinary, this is, is kind of, not very well-concealed condescension.
0: Right.
1: Uh, If if you're talking about blacks or Hispanics and so forth, uh, oh, the rhetoric is wonderful about diversity and inclusion and all that. The real subtext is that, well, these people need our help. If you're talking about the attitude toward ordinary Americans who are white, the new upper class, and this is concentrated on the left, uh, is openly contemptuous. And the... uh, You know, the basket of deplorables comment by Hillary Clinton may have changed world history because so many people heard that and it ignited the anger because that kind of condescension goes along with referring to rednecks and referring to hillbillies and referring to flyover country, that resentment at being looked down on by these Thinking of a word that I, I will not regret saying. I'm looking by these people. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, that,
0: that was just about to get very interesting there. That has,
1: been that has just uh, been enormously destructive of um, the, ability, the ability of ordinary people to say to themselves, there's no problem with me making a, a happy life for myself. Right. There are a few basic rules I have to follow. And if I do it, I'll be fine. They, that's, that, that idea has been lost.
0: And this is very interesting because your research has indicated this, and Senator Ben Sass, in his most recent book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Change, has also touched on this. Uh, going through the things that people actually need to be happy, such as people who love them and that you love back, um, a worldview that helps you to make sense of death, work that you actually get something out of. None of these things actually have anything to do with income, although income would of course hugely help in terms of being able to get the health care you need and things like that. But at a certain point, more money means means nothing. Once you're comfortable and you can provide for your family and things like that. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, especially after having gone through some of your work is to what extent has social media, which of course is sort of like the boogeyman in every room. But the reason I'm interested in this, in the context of what you've been saying is that I feel like one of the reasons people can't be happy with what they have is because they literally spend their waking hours looking at all the stuff other people have that they don't have. Um, so for, for example, I'll just like, even a common example from myself as like, I'm a, I'm a pretty content person. My one obsession is and always has been books. Um, I can I can now go on social media and follow Instagram pages of the best libraries in the world and go from very pleased with my room full of books to you know very envious of somebody else's million dollar library. Right? Uh, and now if if you're not if you're unhappy with certain aspects of your life and you're just getting the very best of everybody else from every social class, I feel like social media is the one way that classes interact. But it, everybody goes away being worse because they're either envious or contemptuous.
1: Yeah. Part of me wants to agree with what you said pretty uh, unreservedly. But then I go back and think of the 1930s. You were in the midst of the depression and what are some of the most popular music, uh, the movies, Philadelphia story, uh, which is of course set in uh, the wealthy suburbs of Philadelphia. There are lots of stories about rich people there showing a life that was completely inaccessible. Uh, to people who were struggling to find jobs, yet the movies were very popular. There was no envy associated with them. So first, I tend to agree with you that these days you have in front of you images of people with the 200-foot yachts and with the huge mansions and all that all the time. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that contributes to it. What's the difference? Why is it that you could have movies in the 30s that were so popular? And one of the reasons was, that in the, those movies, the rich were not presented as being better. On the contrary, they were often presented as being sort of kind of objects of fun.
0: Right.
1: And uh the, the moral of the movie was often that the wealthy uh came to realize you know the the uh the true virtue and uh, so forth of the ordinary Americans. Right. The whole culture was was saying that the rich, in a lot of ways, had a lot to learn from ordinary Americans. And that kind of culture is one in which the rich could be looked upon as, well, that might be nice, but that's not me. And now, why can't I have a billion dollars? Why should that guy have a billion dollars? Envying thy neighbor, has become a virtue, according to some political philosophies, rather than one of the mortal sins.
0: So this is a great way to segue into one of the things I really wanted to ask you. Uh, if we look at what's different between the 30s and now, when you've always had access to you know, vivid imagery of other people who have way more than you and whose lives are better than yours in some sense— but now <clears throat> we've lost some other key elements, and, and you discussed this at length in, in, in a lot of your different research, but the loss of religion is very interesting, and the most recent data that came out late last year indicate that that trend is not only continuing but accelerating at a rate that means we're all going to find out what the impact of this is, is, is very, very soon. But one of the reasons I would suspect or posit that envy is worse now than it used to be is because people don't have anything con- counteracting that envy in themselves, Is they have no belief system to help them make sense of everything and no sense of contentment coming from within. It's only coming from without, because religion should, or at least aspires to, make you content with what you have and give you metaphysical reasons for your for your place in life and also, uh, you know, lay not your treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, as the scriptures say it, Explicitly says your treasures should be of a spiritual and metaphysical nature. So what in your research um, have you found that the the, the slow loss of religion, or I should say it was originally slow and is accelerating now, what impact has that had on all of this? Has it been over-exaggerated because as as, as a side note, almost every story um, that comes out is on how evangelicals are backing Trump in spite of X, Y, Z. So religion has been a much discussed part of all of this, but what to your mind um, has the loss of religion contributed to the current situation of coming apart? It's a
1: complicated situation because the research, for example, does show a lot of secularization.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: one of the things that researchers are still struggling with is, well, how much is it that, People who only went to church, if they're Christians, on Easter and Christmas, right. they used to answer the Gallup poll uh, by saying they were Christians. okay? And now they're very likely to answer the Gallup poll because they no longer even go on Easter and Christmas as saying they're atheist or agnostic. But right. they were never really, religion was never really an important part of their life. So right. to some extent, we may be capturing numbers now which are more accurately limited to people for whom their faith really is an important part of their life. So that's a mitigating factor. And I want to give another mitigating factor. Um, There are some signs, I think, that religion is starting to be taken more seriously by the New upper class. Um, This is anecdotal, okay? But Ross Douthat, a devout Catholic, uh, is on the New York Times uh, pages. Uh, David Brooks, who writes often about spiritual matters, is on the op-ed page of the New York Times. Uh, I've worked for the American Enterprise Institute, where the president until last year was a devout Catholic, and, and there were other devout Christians, very you know well-respected researchers. There, there are a variety of ways in which I think that it is unnatural for what happened in the 20th and early 21st centuries that that one of the things that human beings instinctively are drawn to is a contemplation of where they fit in the universe. And, and the, what happened for a long time was that intellectuals said, oh, smart people don't believe that stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is now a shifting wind where they're saying, well, actually, a lot of the theological heritages of the world are among our richest treasures. So that's, a, that's on the, the plus side. Uh, getting more directly to your question, if you are, let's go with Christianity. just to, I could take one of the other traditions. But with Christianity, if you are a devout Christian, you A, don't believe that money is what you could be going after. On the other hand, you believe that's, that's a real problem, uh, potentially. And another thing is that you believe that, uh, that you are receiving God's grace, whether, whether you are poor or rich or even if you've done things wrong in your life. You have a basis for placing yourself in the world where the world and the universe makes sense and where you also feel very strong obligations to behave in certain ways
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and uh, and I could say the same of the other great religious traditions the founders were who themselves were not really super orthodox they were all nominally Christians uh, but they weren't uh, they wouldn't pass the uh, litmus test for lots of evangelicals today, but they were absolutely emphatically agreed that you cannot have a free society with a constitution such as the one they had created, unless you are trying to govern a religious people. Right. <laughs> if you do not have religion as the controlling force, uh, then the kinds of laws that we have cannot possibly work.
0: And they were right. Because certain liberties are granted under the assumption that people's morals are going to keep them from acting on them. And once you remove that, it becomes a bit of a free-for-all.
1: Yeah, there's, there's I think, the, the issue that if I were a secular humanist, uh, I would find most difficult to respond to uh, in a way that I could believe myself. is, If there is no God, if there are no universal truths about right and wrong, If there is no fundamental reason that rape is bad, that Uh murder is bad, that for that matter, uh, theft is bad, if if there is not a governing sense of of, of universal moral values, then why the hell shouldn't I do as I damn well please? When I die, everything ends. Um, There is no, you know, what is the intrinsic motivation? to behave in what most of us consider to be a moral way. I, think I consider that to be a serious challenge to secular humanism.
0: Which is interesting because Douglas Murray, who's an agnostic, was uh, in a recent discussion he had uh, late last year with Sam Harris. They were discussing the Soviet Union, and Sam Harris said religion really had nothing to do with it. The people who uh, who murdered the millions, um, religion had nothing to do with why they were doing what they were doing. And, and Douglas interrupted him and said, except for the fact that they thought nobody was seeing them and nobody would hold them to account for what they did which is it, it's sort of, it's not something tangible but as you say it's intrinsic it's not extrinsic and and that's what one of the one of the things I was I was really helping hoping you'd be able to unpackage for me because if you look at the the um the commentary about the recent UK election and then also with with the Trump election this idea that there's a new coalition forming of a lot of people from the lower class that you're referring to Um, but it's a strange new coalition, almost, because you talk about religious people, but then you also talk about how many people in the lower class live less socially conservative lives than those in the upper class do, right? So you have people who are angry, and anger is a a motivation that can go in all sorts of different directions and is largely unpredictable uh, as a political force. So you've got that, and then you've got all these external forces. Uh, there's people who are bound together by resentment. So you have evangelicals that are partnered with other groups due to the fact that you've got you know the the Democrats holding an LGBTQ town hall and talking about defunding churches, for example, or moving their their their, their tax free status. And so you have these unlikely coalitions banding together while simultaneously other ones are falling apart. So the Republicans are always the party of big business, and big business is now wrapped itself in the rainbow flag. Is threatening to pull out of states that pass religious liberty or pro-life laws and so in this chaos where you have coalitions falling apart but new coalitions have not quite formed do you see a future for the sorts of coalitions that elected trump and boris johnson or is this just a moment in time in this sort of exchange of of political musical chairs that's going to be over as fast as it erupted
1: Uh, you're asking me to uh, make predictions and my track record as a political prognosticator is not a good one
0: not elections so much as how you see these, these, the forces, because you understand the forces at play, I would argue, a lot better than most of the political predictors. I
1: cannot believe that the secularization of society is going to continue indefinitely. Um, we have never had a, a, an advanced culture in the history of the world that is nearly as secular as contemporary Europe. And I would say that is the test case, the canary in the coal mine, because they will get there first, whatever there is. Mm-hmm. And so Sam Harris, who, by the way, I like and respect, will say that as a secular humanist society, they'll do just fine, and they'll do just fine over the long term. My own sense is not, no, you no, you cannot have a... A free society, a society that allows lots of individual autonomy, without some outside force that leads people to control the self. Right. To, uh, to and and that that uh, Europe is going to be degenerate, and to become degenerate in both sense of those terms. And I think the increasing Muslim minorities in those countries are probably going to accelerate the exposure of the degeneracy. I think it already has. Well,
0: they're, I think already, well, they're already brawling you know, the schools I think, over transgender I think in Europe, education in London and
1: England, for example. What what the chattering classes in England are willing to put up with uh, from the from from the religious uh, religiously very passionate Muslims uh, is indicative of the lack of confidence, the hollowness of the new upper class in England. So, if you start from the premise that over the long term, highly secular societies are going to break down. Then I think you are looking at a future in which there is a kind of resurgence of religiosity, but it could take one of a couple of forms. <laughs> I am very unhappy with the, with the prospect of a religiosity that is authoritarian, uh, that uh, that perverts the, the theology as Christian, Christian theology has been perverted in the past. Those examples are well known, as Islam theology is, is, has been perverted and is being perverted in the present. Uh, so it could go either way. It, you could, if you have a resurgence of what used to be known in the United States as a religious great awakening, we've had three of them at least, maybe four.
0: Edward's with those,
1: those had very good effects. Those, those change the behavior of the population in very positive ways, and that's going to be great if that happens. If you have a new upper class that joins in a resurgence of the Judeo-Christian traditions in the United States, that's going to be great. If you end up with authoritarians of uh, any theological stripe, we're in trouble. But I think sort of a steady state secularism is the least probable of the alternatives.
0: What would collapse look like in your view? Collapse? Yes.
1: Well, if you're talking about the American ex- experiment, yes. it already has. The, in practice, there are still large swaths of the country which are living a very traditional American life. I'm in one of them. I'm in a small town in Maryland uh last week our post office and a house burned down a house with four apartments and i won't go through all the things that the community immediately did but they were all the classic things of taking care of neighbors of making things right and i don't live in an atypical small town small towns all over the country are like that okay but as far as any constitutional limits on the authority of the government uh, the idea of the, of the federal government as the founder saw it, that's, that's dead as a doornail. I don't care how many Supreme Court justices we, we get like Gorsuch and so forth. There are certain things where you can't roll black back the clock because to do so would require declaring that about 97% of what the federal government does is unconstitutional and that ain't going to happen. Uh, so I think that America is showing what uh, post Post America looks like, uh, where you have people who call themselves conservatives, who believe things that would horrify the founders. Mm-hmm. Uh, where all sorts of ideals, basically, we're going to be a rich, powerful country, and you'll still have Americans saying "USA, USA" at at uh, sports events and so forth, but the the sense of the American way of life, which was something that was in common use, a phrase that was in common use until 50 years ago, um, will will be meaningless or already is meaningless. America right now is, in my view, just another rich, powerful country, very like rich, powerful countries that have existed throughout history and that what made us special is... uh, diminishing so rapidly that it probably won't survive the lifetimes of my children. So after trying to be optimistic occasionally on this podcast, I think I have now revealed my inner pessimism about uh, the long term.
0: what, What I'm understanding from you is that right now we're a rich and powerful country living on borrowed time, but a nation that's coming apart with no solution to that short of religious revival means that it has an expiration date that we're just not yet aware of.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, at the time I wrote Losing Ground, I had great hope that, the, that Europe would be unable to sustain their, their form of government for, another, for very long because of just the economic pressures and the, the large immigration that was creating new problems. And I thought that maybe that the example of Europe would lead to a revival of, of passion for traditional American values. And that hasn't happened. Um, so look, the, uh, for the people who watch your broadcast include all sorts of people. I mm-hmm. presume those who are very pro-Trump and those who are anti-Trump. And so, so maybe has we come to a conclusion of this? So I've got to run pretty soon. If you say what's happened the last four years, three years has many good aspects to it that I like. The answer is yeah. I like Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. I like the other justice, the judges that have been appointed. I like the attempts to cut back on regulation. And I go through a variety of other things where I say, you know what, not only have good things happened, I'm not at all sure they would have happened if Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz had been elected president of the United States. Having said that, I will also say that character matters. And that to have Donald Trump as the exemplar as the hero does not bode well for what was at the very core of the American founding. The character of the American people was what in the eyes of the founders made the experiment possible.
0: Right.
1: And so it's like the old cartoon, where the coyote is chasing the road and uh, runs off the edge, edge of the cliff and continues running without a problem for a while and then suddenly realizes where he is and he goes crashing to the ground. Um, we have run off the edge of the cliff and we're still running great. Ain't going to last very long, I don't think. Uh, by long, I mean decades.
0: Final question, what should those listening... Um, who are depressed by that final analysis, what should people do? Just are you the Rod or benedict option where they go to a small town where the American life uh, still exists? Or what would your re- recommendations be before we part ways?
1: Uh, do do what I did, which is I live in traditional America. Uh, and that's open. It's much more easily open now than it ever was before. I write books. I write books calling on Hundreds of, of technical sources. No problem sitting out here in a small town in Maryland. Uh, I've got my internet and I, I can do all that. I, I can drive into D.C. when I want to, uh, to associate with others who are my professional colleagues. And I come back out here and live in my, my small town, which is run just as Alexander, uh Alexis de Tocqueville described in the 1830s. And there are all sorts of places like that around. You can go to a Benedict kind of town where you have a common religious faith, but you don't have to go that far. It's really easy to live in in traditional America. Uh, It still is, and that's true, no matter what your ethnicity is, Um, no matter what your economic status is. What we need and we cannot control is the emergence of a charismatic, person who is devoted to the original American founding, who is going to attract political support in the way that Ronald Reagan did, in the way that FDR did on the left, um, and can get elected president, and brings to the presidency his or her enormous attractiveness as a leader to start to restore some of the institutions because such a leader can change a huge, make a huge change in the milieu can make a a huge change in what is considered fashionable among the people who run the country could result in different kinds of movies being made, different kinds of television being made, different kinds of news reporting being done, but you can't manufacture great people, male or female, just because you need them. Uh, you can hope that the occasion gives rise to them, but it's a hope, not a plan.
0: Well, Dr. Murray, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time to discuss this. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my discussion with Dr. Charles Murray of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much for joining us this week if you want to check out past shows or news or commentary head over to news.com you can find this podcast under the podcast tab we air once weekly and feature a wide range of important discussions on issues relevant to the culture to your family and your community so you can head over to youtube and press subscribe or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts again thanks so much for joining us and we do hope you'll join us again next week